Yes, is the fact that the Dow might go to 36,000 at some point in time. Uh, Dougals, I'm making a proclamation right now. Dow 100K. What's the time frame? I don't care. What's the valuation? Doesn't matter. Am I going to be dead? Who cares? <laughs>
safe-ish investment to be able to put cash in that I don't need in a in any short term. That's how I want it in cash. Yeah. Why would they want it in cash? That'd be my first thought too. So when I first read it, I thought this was the cash emergency fund. Basically, Uh, a lot of people quote like three to six months worth of expenses, right? Um, But with the extra mention of a couple of 5k tranches, that's okay in a savings account. Now I'm a little unclear on like, which what the horizon is for this. I'll let you I'll let you jump in. But I think we need to clarify that with the guidance here. Yeah, I think that would have to be clarified. Because if it's an emergency, like a true emergency fund, then you got to go, I would say something like money market ish, like it's something that's at least cash equivalent. But if it's a long term horizon, you kind of want to be safe, but don't have to be safe. That's a different, it's a full different beast. I think about this sometimes like in a, a three or four bucket approach or sometimes in like a foundational pyramid approach. I mean, I mean you got to decide what your emergency cash fund looks like and we can talk random numbers here. Let's just say that's like 10K, right? You're going to have that in cash. At least I am. And I'm going to try and optimize that cash with exactly what you're saying, either money market or like high yield savings where you're getting maybe somewhere around a half a percent of interest, right? And with inflation where it is, I mean, it's basically a negative yielding account for, for, for the, the short term. Yeah, very true. And then um, there's that next, I'd call it tranche or uh, bucket that depending on the time horizon, like if you're less than a year or about a year, I'd be considering CDs probably. I mean, how, how much- CDs just- CDs aren't yielding much right now is the thing. Like, so for the, for the non-liquidity, CDs aren't really pumping out all that much, at least from what I've seen. Like yeah, I can, I've seen, in a normal environment, I could see where that might be the case. But right now, it's strange. I've seen some stuff around a percent, which would yeah. be better than your long-term online savings or whatever. Yeah. But then it's locked and up. Then if, yeah, I mean, when your time horizon goes more than three years, I think you can get creative and... If you want to do a no-brainer approach, you can do something like a wealth front or a betterment or yeah. other things. And when your time horizon gets more than five years, I think you can be really creative depending on your investor style. The thing uh, we try and do on this podcast is provide some different perspectives. So I'm not just going to tell you how to invest it with the value methodology. Dougal's is going to provide some insights on other approaches. But to me, that's kind of where I go. Like, let's let's fully determine the time horizon and then figure out the best approach there. Uh, the liquidity that you need in time horizon are the two important things uh, for me. And can I throw something out there, though, to take a little bit of a turn? Please. Do you know what James Glassman and Kevin Hassett would have to say about this? I don't know those people off the top of my mm-hmm. head. So back in, I'm taking a, a turn. I am taking a turn here. Yeah. Um, back in the late 90s, 98 to 99, James Glassman and Kevin Hassett, uh, economists, and I can't remember what the other one did, They they started writing about how stocks are actually viewed as too risky and they are more of a riskless asset. And they came out with a book in 1999 called the Dow 36,000. So I tie this in because what they would say is put it in stocks, like no matter what, put it in stocks because actually stocks are fairly riskless is what they would have said. So back in 1999, they came out with this book, Dow 36,000. And at the time, the Dow was around 9K. It was a little under 9K. And so the reason this is coming back up right now is because the Dow crossed 35,000, you know, a couple of weeks back. And so it's, you know, getting, getting all the rage. But basically what they were saying is that given the fact that uh, the, there's this like equity premium puzzle that's existed 
I don't know if you're if you're familiar with that, Skippy, but I'll uh, educate the listener. So the idea of like of a premium is if something is more risky, then you'd say it has to have a higher return, right? Generally, um, but economists have had a hard time proving that, like through the different models that they've had over the decades, as to why equities actually should have that risk premium. And so because they've performed well over time. So if you look at the data, they've like, we don't understand why there's a risk premium because it seems like equities, they might fall down, but they continue to perform, right? And so basically these folks were saying was, well, if there actually shouldn't be a risk premium, then in 1999, stocks were actually undervalued. And so over the next few years, the Dow, like in the next five years, something like that, four or five years, the Dow should be at 36,000. So again, this is 1999. They said in the next few years, Dow 36,000. So now we have this article that came out in the Wall Street Journal. It's, a, it's an opinion piece, sorry, that came out in the Wall Street Journal yeah. by um, Kenneth Rogoff. He's an economist. And it's called Why the Dow 36,000 Forecast Was Right. I'm going to vastly oversimplify this, but do you want to hop in for a sec? No, this is fascinating. This is like, for those who don't know, because I know we have some like non-hardcore investors that listen to the show, like... What happened in 2000, 2001, uh, the Dow fell off a cliff. It happened again in 2008. So if you don't have that context, that's important context about this claim. Exactly. And, and the Dow is a, a collection of 30 like blue chip stocks. Yeah. Good so, point. so the title of this is why the Dow 36,000 forecast was right, as I mentioned. And his why, again, oversimplifying is basically it's because the Dow is going to hit 36,000 and they said it was going to hit 36,000. <laughs> So obviously their theory is right. Uh, you should go and read the opinion piece. Two, it does two crashes it. and 22 years later, like no, no big deal. And if it actually reaches that, the next uh, big correction is probably on its way too. So like, yeah. So, so there's that. And just to, generally, I would say the Dougal's opinion is the argument that something's right because it's right isn't a particularly strong uh, argument, especially after 20 years later. But I think uh, Cliff um, Asnes, is that how you pronounce his yeah. name, who yep. runs uh, AQR Capital, he does yep. a pretty nice little Twitter thread takedown of this, which we can uh, retweet so folks can read. I think it's pretty interesting. What I really found, though, I want to point out one part of this article or this opinion piece that I think is the real danger in it um, that goes against some of the principles I think that we've thrown out in this podcast is it makes this potentially logical economic argument into a dangerous like social construct i think i'm going to i'm going to read this paragraph that has in it it says nevertheless monsieurs got real fancy yeah uh, glassman and hassett also got something very right those with the wealth and liquidity to ride out short and medium run fluctuations have an enormous advantage for those with little wealth the advice to invest in stocks is not very helpful Yet for the majority of middle-income Americans who certainly understand long-term investing when it comes to housing, the equity premium is something they should know about and make their own decisions. I read that. And so again, this is why I say it's a logical economic argument, right? Because if you need money in the short term, then putting your money into something that might go down in the short term, that is something that, that could be dangerous. But saying that those with little wealth, the advice to invest in stocks is not very helpful. It, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start yelling at him like I yell at math. I mean, so what matters here is your time box. Yeah, uh, your your time horizon and that you understand the valuation of the thing you're buying. I don't care if I have a hundred bucks to my name. If I don't need ten of those dollars for twenty years, and I could be smart about what I buy, 
I can make a great investment. Yeah, that's a dumb thing to say. And and what also seems disconnected from this article is the valuation piece. So yes, is the fact that the Dow might go to thirty six thousand at some point in time? Dougal's, I'm making a proclamation right now. Dow one hundred k. What's the time frame? I don't care. What's the valuation? <laughs> Doesn't matter. Am I gonna be dead? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> so, are you gonna write a book? Uh, yeah, it, it's, consider it done. I'll type it out in. 10 minutes it's gonna have one page which is just a graph that's up and (laughs) yeah up and to the right with with uh the x-axis not labeled okay peace we're (laughs) out of here uh all right all right next in the fishbowl all right we're gonna check this quick hit rapid fire stuff so uh microstrategy bought five thousand more bitcoins just connecting the dots from previous conversations yay i just can't i just can't the china crackdown continues so they're talking about separating Alipay's, basically front end and the back end, their analytics on the customer that all happened with their credit decisions, which is, from my understanding, the competitive advantage of Alipay. The Where I want to connect the dots there and, and we can move on is just that relates to Alibaba and Alibaba stock, which we've talked about previously on the show because Alibaba owns one third of Ant Alipay. So the ti- China crackdown continues, right? And I saw something, I didn't look too deeply into this, but on that on that same general thread, I saw that there's some potential threat to the gambling industry in Macau as well. And so uh, casino stocks that are that are Ooh, over there started falling. Yeah, It makes me feel like, here's what I picture, and I kind of hope it happens. Have you seen The Hunger Games? Yes. Okay. So what I picture is, uh, you know, the way that the, the folks in the Capitol were dressed in The Hunger Games? Yeah. I don't know why this has to be the image, but it is in my head. I have a picture of of those folks in China, and there's this huge, huge Wheel of Fortune style wheel that just has industries names on it, and they yeah. spin it once a week. <laughs> and then they they re- do the press release or something, and then, and then they do the press release. I, I feel like that's the, and then it has to come with the Hunger Games outfits. It just has to because it, it's all that works. Anyway, all right, next. Yeah, we'll keep it moving. So. Litecoin, the cryptocurrency, jumped 25% in a matter of minutes on news. And for those who can't see me on video, I'm putting that in quotes, that Walmart was going to uh, start accepting it as payment. What happened here is scammers found a way to write a good-looking Walmart press release. Litecoin, the company, this is fascinating to me, like the verified Twitter account retweeted it, which gave it even more credibility. People what? bought the asset. I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah. People bought the asset. And then when folks that actually did some decent reporting, folks like the Wall Street Journal, and tried to get verified statements from Walmart, I mean, this all happened within 60, 90 minutes, if memory serves, that Walmart came out and said, this isn't true. And the Litecoin fell off a cliff again. So it's thought that this was a somewhat elaborate pump and dump scheme. Isn't that fascinating? It's, there's some sadness in that as well. Like if someone, if you read something that said Skippy is going to become president of Sweden and you're like, oh, retweet. Like, oh, baby. Like, like as there... if you didn't know, like you didn't no. know that you weren't going to become president of Sweden. Hold on. Tweedens or <laughs> why does it say Sweden? <laughs> the president of Sweden? Sweden? Sweden's official Twitter account retreated that, baby. They're like, <laughs> yeah. and we love the Skippy and Noodles. Oh, we didn't realize we elected him, but that's fine. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Craziness. Man, that is that's a thing. That's a thing. All right. 
All right, so if we keep it moving on this, the next thing that's of interest is what, six weeks back or something, we talked about Colorado's employment law requiring the state the salary range for job postings and how interesting that's been for the local economy because we're yep. both Colorado-based, but then how um, some companies have avoided posting jobs in Colorado because of it. This seems to have taken hold. So Nevada, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Maryland, California, Washington, Toledo, Ohio, and Cincinnati, Ohio are all moving this direction in terms of having some increased transparency around pay associated with job openings. I like it. I do too. Uh, Nevada, Connecticut, Rhode Island are, they call it moderate transparency. It's like you either have to tell them during the interview process or when you extend the job offer, something like that. Uh, the other cities and states I mentioned are basically upon request. But hey, if you're in California or Washington, that's an important thing for you to do in the interview process, in my eyes. Request that. You know what I've enjoyed uh, most about it since it's been enacted in Colorado that you have to put it in the job posting? What? Is so typically when I'd have an early conversation with somebody, you know, either I or uh, the recruiting team, whoever's having the early conversation, there's some version of that conversation where we just want to make sure that we're kind of talking from the same book, right? Compensation wise. And so I'll ask a question yeah. like, if you were to pursue something else, like what kind of compensation range would you want? Right. We ask like yeah. some kind of question like that. And then there's this beautiful waltz that occurs between, <laughs> between the camp Awk and us. Awkward. Right? Not yeah, always exactly. beautiful. Yeah. But, but now it's more of a, a, have you seen the range that we put in the job description and do you fit kind of within that? And it goes, and, yeah. Yeah. Like, right. And like, it's, it's so much simpler. So much easier. Yeah. I completely agree. I've been on both sides of that delicate dance and before there was like just such a lack of transparency and there was some taboo around it that it made it harder than it should have been making progress. All right. You know, the brilliant evaluation finance professor at NYU, Damodarian, am I saying that right? I'll put this on the Twitter. He had a breakdown this week that I thought was really interesting about ESG investing. So those who uh, aren't yeah. familiar. Uh, that's environmental, social, and governance factors. And so this has been hot for years. This continues to be hot. And his take is there's a compensation machine for the people that sell these products that is driving this more than a desire to actually invest in companies that are more socially responsible or better for the government. And I think that's worth a read if you're into it. So I wanted to mention it. Yeah, that sounds good. I might see if there's someone that might want to come on and talk about that because there's a there's like there's a really good side to that. And then there's the what seems like 80% of folks right now that are taking advantage of those three letters. But I think I think having a, a deeper conversation around that could be interesting. I'll put some I think feelers it, out. I think it started um from a good place, but even um like I heard Patrick Asana see on the Odd Lots podcast. Um, talking through some of the custom indexing that his company provides and how uh, with custom indexing, he'll have different clients come to him and be like, this is this is what I think is bad and this is what I don't want to invest in. And that's different for everyone. He gave an example of someone who thinks sugary drinks are the cause of a lot of obesity, which is the cause of a lot of health challenges, which cascades down the line. So I think how that gets defined is really the challenging piece. And yeah. uh, again, I've heard people argue that companies like Exxon are 
incredibly socially irresponsible and the cause of climate change and everything else. And I've heard the counter arguments in a way that are uh, pretty compelling as well. So I think I just think it's really hard to define. It is. We talked about this a bit with uh, Adam Burroughs when he came on and he was discussing uh, LPs that wanted to get into his fund yep. and how there's such a different definition of sin products, right? Everyone has their own definition and it's that is hard to decipher. So you have to kind of stick to your principles when you go and define them clearly. Yeah, the thing I wanted, the high level point I wanted to mention is if your investment advisors throwing ESG your way, maybe give it a second look and make sure it's one, it's ESG you actually believe in and two, that there's not, it's not just something to repackage to charge you a higher fee effectively because there are marketing things that get assigned to trends like this that aren't always good for the consumer. Dougal's next on the list. Do you want to talk about gas stations? Making oh, money? We can, drop, we can drop a couple facts. Hit it. So there's an article in The Hustle called Why Most Gas Stations Don't Make Money from Selling Gas. And I, when I saw this, I immediately thought another article that I think folks do know about is why most movie theaters don't make money from selling movies. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a yeah, very yeah. similar, it's kind of a very similar concept. So a couple of facts that throws out was one, who owns the gas stations? And it's this is the fact that the majority of gas stations are owned by individual operators. So like, so that's good. That's good. And then it broke down um, the price of gas and where your money actually ends up going. Right. So if if you have a, the national average of three dollars and 18 cents per gallon, a dollar sixty three crude oil, 55 cents refining, 55 cents taxes, 25 cents transport. And then you get 20 cents. That is the markup, right? So from a, a $3.18 gallon, yep. 20 cents uh, goes, to, goes to the gas station, right? It's, a, it's very competitive, as you can imagine. And so therefore, where's the money made? Same place it's made by movie theaters. Gas yeah. station operators and movie theaters are in the same business. And that is selling all of the stuff, the accoutrement, as they say in France, <laughs> of the of the main good. And so when you look at the gross profit margins of the convenience store items, what do you think is the number one brand or sorry, number one category of of item? In terms of gross profit or in terms yep. of uh, gross profit? I'm going to go energy drinks, baby. Ooh, good guess. Good guess. It's actually health and beauty. What? Health and beauty. Meaning like um, toothpaste? What are yeah. we talking about here? So health and beauty is 53% profit margins. Oh, you're just talking about profit margins. Okay. I was th I was trying to do... So you're not oh, talking... Like you were saying like if you look at their total profit, what, yeah, what's the highest percent? Oh, sorry I, about that. Because yeah. I think the profit margin on toothpaste is off the charts, but I think they probably sell one a day. And I think the profit margin on other goods might be you know only 35%, but they might they might go through like 500 a day. Interesting though. Yeah. So, so I've seen this play out. I mean, this happened with oh. grocery stores and everything else, but it seems like, go ahead, sir. I'm going to throw out one thing just to give you a little bit of credit for where credit is due. Okay. Because the, if you look at the revenue, Doritos, sunglasses, lotto tickets, and energy drinks are 30% of gas stations revenue, 70% of their profit. So I was asking before about the highest profit margin items but if you look at the total amount of profit lotto tickets energy drinks doritos and sunglasses it's it's quite an array uh, make up 70 percent. so continue grocery stores uh, i mean i just had to celebrate over here no i i i'm curious about i see gas stations trying to get 
bigger and bigger in terms of number of pumps, but also a, like the convenience store size uh, within the gas station. And I think it's this, you're tr just trying to get more traffic through to buy more energy drinks. And that model makes sense for sure. Another thing that's interesting for me personally, maybe I'm the only one that thought this way previously, but it, this changed my mentals on it, is when I've seen uh, like Costco, for example, put a gas station there. Yeah. My, my initial thinking before I read this article was along the lines of gas must be a highly profitable like line. Like if you have people coming, gas is profitable. So you might as well just get extra profit because that's like a one-stop shop. Yeah. Whereas I read this and went, and who knows for, for Costco, this could look different, but I read this and went, oh no, it's actually, since gas can be a destination, now you can turn the gas destination into a, they're going to come into Costco and buy all your stuff as well. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it that way. We should do like almost a business breakdown of Costco at some point, because it's so fascinating. I don't claim to be an expert, but I, I've read a lot of stuff on Costco um, that talks about how basically everything in the store is sold at almost no margin and the entirety of their profit is based on the yearly subscription model. So I think gas is at a lower margin at Costco for some some of the factors you're describing, definitely. Probably to get more people in store, but also to entrench that membership fee so they pay it next year as well. It's good stuff. I thought... I don't know where I stumbled across that, but I was familiar with the gas station model, um, which is kind of fun. So if I really don't like the gas station owner, I might still get gas there, but I'd never buy a candy bar there. Just purposefully? vice versa. Yeah, it's like how when I, I Google things, if I don't like, well, if I'm having a, a frustrating day with Google, I will never click on the ad at the top. I'll go two inches lower to click just oh, so google is brutal make money. so you're just gonna yeah, walk in and shop around you're like pick up the sneakers <laughs> like put it down <laughs> occupy their air and space oh, harsh you're gonna harsh. get me off task here i was at a uh you had a good clip you had a good clip i was at a sporting event last weekend and they had this thing where you'd pay before you go in to grab your refreshment and then you'd grab your refreshment and you'd just walk out and I'm like, how do they know what refreshment I purchased? How many refreshments I purchased? They claim it's all weight-based, based on the number of things you grab. Kind of like the Amazon Go stores, but it felt pretty shady to me. And actually, I'll go look at my credit card now because um, there were like five people in the same area grabbing refreshments while I was there. So I'm not convinced that it actually knows which one was me. <laughs> Anyway, that that's where gas stations are going. There's not going to be people in there anymore. You go scan your credit card to walk in the door. You go walk around, grab whatever you want, leave, and you're just going to hope the computers figure it out, baby. There you go. There you go. Can I take us on to a slightly longer term topic, or do you have another short topic to hit out there? I mean, I got like 15 more short topics, so let's uh, we'll keep those in our back pocket. Let's there yours. So there was a a paper that came out recently that I think, it, I think is interesting around valuations and narratives. I dove into my academic paper, Fishbowl. Thank you for sending that over. Thanks, Skippy. I'm pretty sure you sent that over to me. It's yeah. called Narratives and Valuations. Uh, came out a couple, couple weeks ago. And give some quick hits and maybe we'll have a longer discussion around this. So, what so this is Michael Mobison, who is brilliant and you should read everything he does. Just I'll jump in with that. There you go. And so what this was, 
It was a survey of about 1500 people. And it asked this, like, I think this is really fascinating. So what they were trying to figure out is how much do narratives impact valuation? That's the high level. What they, how they did that was they asked the people in the survey to select a mug, random hat, or special hat from around their house. So it was like, go do that, take a picture of it, upload it to us, right? Yeah. Uh, and then once, they, once that selection happened, the survey then randomly sorted people into a few different categories or a couple different categories. One category was you're either going to write down a narrative about that item. Like that, for an example of that would be, how did you buy it? When did you retrieve it? What does this mean to you? When was the last time you used it, right? Either write down a narrative or you write down a list of attributes about it. Yeah. And so they separated this out into there's the narrative group and the list group. Then it's, it's such a cool idea. And, so and cool. I, I just stuck my foot in my mouth. It came through Michael uh, Mobison. The authors are actually Dor Marig from the University of Pittsburgh and George Lowenstein from Carnegie Mellon. So just wanted to correct that. Credit where credit's due. Yes. So you have these two groups. And next, what they did was they asked you if you'd sell the item and for how much. Yep. What are the results? <laughs> what what you think i actually didn't get to do a deep dive on this so we'll turn it into a quiz but i'm nearly positive the narrative related to a higher i call it a thought valuation a, a more inflated feeling of that item that that it did and they broke this out into many different like categories so they could look at it in a few different ways and so there was a range of how inflated it was the range they gave was like 20 to 80 percent depending on a few um, areas but the average is that the narrative group's valuations were on average 36% higher than the list group. Yep. Not at all a surprise. And this, I, I hate to bring it back to myself, so I'll only do it quickly, but this is what I struggle with so much as a value investor. When I come up with a investment idea, it's often like, well, it's fundamentally cheap here. It's a strong quality stock. There's lots of cash on hand. There's no chance of it going bankrupt. It's this list of factors around why this is a, investment that is more likely to go up significantly than it is to go down and you when when people talk to you about hey what are you invested in what's the hypothesis there and you kind of give them that like boring analytical view there's never any excitement it's kind of like yeah and, and then when you tell a story about something that's probably less likely to succeed you can see the sparkle in people's eyes nailed it nailed it the uh, real life use case takeaways i had were if you are in sales, oh, yeah. use the narrative. Do not list out the features of your product. Be Apple, not not Apple. When you're when you're when you're selling. <laughs> if you are an investor, for your own process, use the list methodology so that you do not over-index on your own narrative in order to figure Ooh. out what evaluation should be. I like that takeaway. So it, knowing you're an investor, say you're starting to get excited about something, if you can disconnect from the narrative, you can probably end up with a truer valuation. That's a really cool takeaway. Yeah. It, and specifically for me, what it made me think about is, I think I've said to you before, there are, there are some stocks that are in the model portfolio that even when the model portfolio says to sell them, I may have transferred them to my other portfolio because I like I want to yeah. hold them for the long term. Yeah. What's interesting is so I read this and I'm thinking about those stocks. Those stocks are narrative for me. Yep. Like that that is what they are. Those I can't I I'm not doing that because of here's the list. I'm doing that because like there is a narrative inside where that I've told myself. And so I want to go back and reevaluate 
um, some of those, I mean, I can't for the ones I've already done it for, but for yeah. the ones that in the future, I want to reevaluate that. Really interesting. Love it. You should, we'll put it out on the tweets. If we, I don't think we have yet. Uh, you should, you should read this. It's not too long, 15 pages, not the usual 70 page uh, academic papers. I, I'm touting. So yeah. Read it. So good. And I, I knew I wasn't sure if I was going to get to it this week, but I sent it to my research assistant, Googles, really like my research superstar. And, and I'm so happy we go to talk about it. This is amazing. I consumed it with the force of a thousand Kings. <laughs> okay. Let's keep going with quick hits. Dougals, there was a survey. I don't have the specifics in front of me. It said, what will it take to retire? 300K, 750K, 1.7 million, or a miracle? What do you think 46% of millennials said? Miracle. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Ooh. I don't have anything to say about it. I just think it's crazy. All right. Here's the next quick hit. You know... Ray Dahlia, don't you? Yeah, the largest hedge fund. He started the largest hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater Capital. Yeah, Ray Dahlia. CNBC did an interview with him this week. Talk a little Bitcoin. I want to read a, a piece of that article. There are so many things in a historical perspective that didn't have intrinsic value and had perceived value and then went hot and became cold. It could go either way. You just have to know what it is. It could be tulips and Holland. This is when talking about Bitcoin. But then the article says, still, the billionaire investor said Bitcoin makes a good alternative to cash and he owns a smaller percentage of the dig digital token compared to his gold exposure in his portfolio. He also mentioned that if it gets too successful, the regulators will kill it. Lots of thoughts here on my end. What are your thoughts? The, the initial thought I have is, I can't think of the phrase for some reason around this, but when you have completely outsized positive outcome, but there's a chance that it goes to zero. Yeah, that's what there's, there's a phrase for that I can't think of. But the that that's immediately what comes to mind for me is he, I think kind of what he's saying here is that there are many things or many reasons why this could be a fad, a bubble, it could go to zero, regulators could kill it. But if they don't, the outsized returns that could possibly come for that, I'm not going to ignore. And that's, I think that's what he's saying, mostly in my, in my mind, which makes sense for someone that when we were looking at the 13F for Bridgewater Capital, they basically own the S&P yeah. 500 as their top, right? Yeah. And so to be able to have small bets, I imagine, that are fairly risky, it makes sense to me. Actually, I love that perspective. Because to me, where I get hung up is, this is an asset with no intrinsic value, but I own it. You know, um, but the and I don't know why I can't think of that term either. The probabilistic outcome with outsized positive returns and then minimum downside is how I feel about I feel like that's the sane investment in the crypto space right now. That's the only way it really makes sense, in my opinion. So apparently he's saying something similar. It's interesting that he brought in tulips in Holland. <laughs> They, they come up a lot on this podcast. Yeah. All right. Next. Do you know about Cyber Kong? Not as much as I should. I know basically nothing other than the headlines, but the, your tulips in Holland is going to come. It's going to come up again, right? So these Cyber Kongs, which are NFTs, I believe. Uh, and I, I think somehow they generate 10 bananas a day for the owner. <laughs> They started uh, selling, seems like 
earlier this year. This one that I have an example of is number 670, sold for about $3,000 in June. And this week it sold for $356,000. Sounds about right. But each banana is currently worth, sorry, I can't do this without laughing, uh, $45.15. And the market cap of bananas alone is $5 million. So you have like, <laughs> I can't do it without laughing. You have like these imaginary gorilla things with imaginary bananas that are selling for the price of homes. Any thoughts or should we just move on? I do have thoughts because this reminds me, you know, we've, uh, we've talked about this a few times of NFTs and the correlation to uh, what I learned back in the day in the second life world. This reminds yeah. me, so, like it, it just starts getting deeper and deeper. Back uh, at least a decade ago, I don't know what it's like right now, but approximately a decade ago, there were, there were these products in second life that they were called, it was some play off the word animals. Um, Osmals, sure. I think they might've been called Osmals, like the, the company may have been Osmal that, or Oz or something like that that made these animals. And what they were, were you would, you'd code an animal and then kind of like in some of the Facebook games, you could like breed the animals and they create like other animals. And so people would breed these things and you sell them. And so you buy the, you buy the Osmal, you buy another Osmal, you meet somebody and you're like, well, I've got this Osmal, you have that Osmal, let's breed them. And you could sell like what was coming out of that. And it's such a, like I read this and I went, I mean, this is to like epic proportions compared to <laughs> what was happening in, uh, in Second Life, but it, it just brought a lot of those memories back to me. It is fascinating. And I will say this, a request, uh, if anyone out there knows someone that's in the NFT creation game, we'd love to talk to them. Yes. Yes, we would. To understand what this is like from the artist standpoint. I, I just, it's just fascinating. All right, so just so the listeners knows, there's still like 15 more articles on the list. I'm going to try and uh, narrow it down to just talk four more, I think. Oh, hold on, sorry. Actually, I, sorry, yeah. I, just got, I, just got, I just got Googling for a second. So the, what do you think that banana production in the U.S., like actual, actual bananas <laughs> in the U.S., which seems like it happens mostly in Florida, what I'm seeing from a quick Google, what do you think that the uh, the dollar value is? I mean, let's say it's comparable. Let's say it's like, I don't know, five to 10 million. This is what I just Googled. It says $2 million. I'm not doing deep <laughs> research, so I don't know how accurate that is. But the NFT real bananas. bananas are <laughs> crushing. They're worth twice as much as the real bananas. And my favorite banana fact is uh, they're typically the most sold item in a grocery store. So if you look at all the items in the grocery store, you look at what gets sold the most, a banana is typically the most common item. So think of how many bananas get sold on a daily basis and the, the electronic bananas are somehow worth more. <laughs> the world's a lovely place. All right, what's next? We talked about buy now, pay later uh, last week. There's some really good articles. There, there's a lot of attention being paid on this. I think I want to talk about it from a almost a high-level hypothetical perspective. I remember a time where I thought, it's we just talked about gas stations. I remember a time 20 years ago when I was thinking about uh, things I was sure would be around for the next 50 to 100 years. Like gas stations was on that list. And now with electric cars, gas stations might not be around in 100 years. Who knows? Another company that I've always really admired and thought had like this massive moat 
was like a visa, right? It just felt like credit cards were here to stay. This buy now, pay later stuff is really catching on and everyone's creating their own version of it, it seems. And I think it's going to change the way consumer credit... Am I being too hyperbolic here, Dougals? I think it might change the way consumer credit happens in the US, if not the world. Yeah, and I, I'm not convinced that the the ways in which the companies are operating today is going to be it. But I think that your broader point around there is likely to be some shift, I think feels right. Even from the, from the perspective that you are evaluating based on the purchase and not on the, um, the consumer, like not just on the consumer broadly, but also on that purchase for that consumer. It's an interesting concept in, in and of itself. I still have my concerns around it and the debt and the uh, whether people will consider all the buy now, pay later purchases they make into their budget appropriately such that they don't stack up and, and get to them later. But that, that's a behavior change, right? Which you can overcome. But from the industry, there's a, there's a there there. And it's yeah, every so, day I read something new. Every day. Yep. yep. I'm trying to figure out who to attribute this quote to, but marketplace.org did a breakdown and they start with, Credit cards are the Neanderthal version of what really needs to happen. Much more comparency, much more consumer control, a really clear sense of what things cost. Like it, they're just that model is getting attacked, and there's people willing to step up. That leads me to the next thing that I read from the Sydney Morning Herald. Go ahead, Douglas. You know what this, what that quote made me think about as well. This gets a little bit back to Bill Wang, right back in the day. Bill Wang, yeah, yeah, um, where his hedge fund imploded. Uh, a few months ago. And when I read this, what it made me think about was there's transparency at the the micro level, but not transparency in the aggregate, right? It goes back to what I was saying before of you can have all these buy now, pay laters that stack up, not in your favor. True. The reason it True. makes me think about the Bill Wang situation is recently I was talking to someone at a hedge fund and they were they were talking about how little transparency their brokers have into what they do. And they're like, it's actually quite ridiculous that we're making all these trades and they, or they make like the brokers are the ones that actually execute the trades. And so they execute these trades for us, not knowing what else we have going on elsewhere. They just make it yep. happen. And yep. th those two things felt somewhat equivalent in my mind, right? This is the consumer side um, of it, but then you have the hedge fund side. So that's all. Well, Continue. But stacking the buy now, pay laters is an interesting thing that will almost need like consumer reporting at some point. Uh, because if I buy this on a firm and this on Afterpay and this on Visa's version of it and this on PayPal's version, I mean, that's what's happening. PayPal's creating their own, Visa's creating their own, everyone, there's going to be millions of these things yeah. in three months. So then what you're telling me is then you have a line item, like line by line item uh, ledger of what you're buying, and then you pay one fee. Uh, no, I don't use, think that's going to happen. Maybe use a plastic <laughs> card to start that process. <laughs> Hilarious. So then the Sydney Morning Herald did this breakdown of uh, buy now, pay later. And actually in a, well, no, this is tangentially related. The second largest company in uh, Australia is a bank. And I forget the name at the moment. I can grab it. But uh, he went in front of their, congress their congressional leaders or the equivalent of that. Commonwealth Bank. Sorry to interrupt. Commonwealth Bank. Thank you. It basically said, have we thought about Apple's role in this, in, in this entire process? So Apple does charge a small fee to use Apple Pay. 
It's not disclosed, and it is a small fee. Uh, Google does not charge a, a small fee, but Google collects consumer purchase data, which to me is almost scarier to to make uh, to improve their profile about that individual user, right? It's not it's not scary in the hands of Google though. They're nice. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Uh, as an aside, if you haven't read the Facebook files on the Wall Street Journal this week, that's worth spending some time with. Holy cow. Um, so anyway, he goes, and I, again, I should pull up the exact numbers, but uh, Australia is pretty far advanced in the digital wallets adoption. I think something like 70% of payments are happening digitally there. So he's saying... If Apple owns that value stream, like think of the threat to banks long term. Apple's not a bank right now. They partner with Goldman Sachs. But if Apple really owns the large majority of those transactions in terms of they work, they go through their device, they use their technology, at what point does Apple decide to transition their strategy, maybe create their own buy now, pay later service, maybe brand themselves as a bank? And what was so interesting about this, uh, of the worldly perspective, is he's going, we pay a lot of taxes to the Australian government. Apple pays almost none. Do you really want this threat to exist? Mm, wow. Fascinating take. Yeah, because he's saying you're going to kill our business or, or this is a significant threat to our business. That's going to hurt our country. It, it's just, yeah. I hadn't seen that take before and I thought it was somewhat compelling. I got to read that one. I haven't. All right. Last thing on my list, I think. No, two things. Do you know how many ship containers are waiting to dock in Los Angeles and Long Beach ports right now? 78. Apparently, it's at around 60. It's an all-time high. Isn't that crazy? That is. That's a lot. And do, do, you, uh, do you know the number, like the good count? Like how many goods are on those ships? I imagine they're not schooners, you know? I don't know the good count. Um, this data is from the Marine Exchange of Southern California. I'll tell you that uh, the first seven months of the year, this was between like zero and two. So you might have a ship or two. <laughs> that's I mean, that's you not a big a... range. That's not a big range. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe I missed it in the graph. Maybe three. Uh, so just, just doing quick math, the average there is one. Oh, and, sorry, sorry. And actually, I misspoke. So that's the first six months of 2020. Then this is ramped up in the last year. In, say, February of 2021, it was about 35 ships. They were able to alleviate some of that uh, supply chain capacity, bring it back down to around 10 in like June. And now we're at 60. They're now predicting like the holiday season might be craziness in terms of mm, getting your whatever. Yeah. I want I want my Xbox. The Xbox is sitting on the boat uh, and it's just not available for you. This Oh, my goodness. It's not going to be good. This is not going to be good. Does it give uh, 19 numbers? 2019 numbers? Not with what like I Like a normal before. year, quote unquote. I mean, I, <laughs> I think a normal year is you have a ship or two waiting to dock and that's yeah. it. Pro probably. Yeah. Oh, that's scary. All right. Last thing. You want to talk personal finance in schools? Let's do it. And then I've got one thing. Oh, good. We've, uh, we've talked about this before, right? It, it seems like teaching personal finance in middle schools, high schools, colleges just makes sense. It seems like everyone would benefit. So there is an example I came across this week 
where there actually is personal finance being taught in a high school at the freshman level, which is pretty sweet. Turns out that the large majority of this class or a key component of this class is a stock picking competition, a stock picking competition that lasts you know, three months uh, about the size of a semester. This is just idiotic. This is almost worse than having no personal finance education, in my opinion. The way you got to do it, not not the way, I'm not an expert here, but a way that I would believe would be much more impactful is you have every year from freshman to senior year, you have a personal finance, you know, 101, 201, 301, 401. Yeah. And you start something that ha- then your freshman year, and then you see what that's like in your senior year. And even four years isn't necessarily that long of a time period we're talking about life, but at least you get some sense of, of compounding, right? And some sense of longevity. Three oh, so much better. Yeah. So three months. And the point here, if, if we haven't made it clear, is to win a stock picking competition over three months, you're you're going out of your way to buy basically bad investments that are really volatile because that's the only way you win. And, and so you're actually teaching the opposite of the behaviors that should be taught. I'd say, I mean, I don't even know that four years is enough Douglas. I'd say they should be like building their own back testing models over at least a decade or two, but maybe that's like too quantitatively well, I mean, for, for them actually, like if you want to choose a stock, if you're going to do a stock picking thing, which I'm not sure that's the thing to do, but if you're going to yeah. do a stock picking thing, at least hold the stuff for four years. That, that's all. That's yeah. what I'm. That's what I'm. Completely. Saying. Completely yeah. agree. Yeah. Oh, danger, danger! I drop something in here. Yeah, go the for it. Bowl. Okay. So this is about simplicity, complexity, and well, being simple. Basically, let me put that down. Erase as much complexity as possible and no more. Isn't that something like something like that? I think is what Einstein said. Like, make it as simple as possible, but no more simple. Yeah. <laughs> something yeah. along those lines. There was a Bloomberg article called if your CEO talks like Kant, think twice before investing. General rule of thumb, even before I read this, I found this to be uh, like superficially academically interesting. I, don't, I didn't dive more deeply than that. But what happened was there were these researchers that looked at the language that was used by executives in earnings calls. Yep. So they, there was a part of the article that stated that you could look at 10Ks, but 10Ks are written by like lawyers and whatnot. And so it's not a it's and going to be complex folks. And yeah, exactly. It's not CEO. Yep, exactly. But a CEO on a earnings call should be able to talk pretty clearly. And so, so what they did was they looked at these earnings calls for all companies in the Russell 1000 large cap index and split them into 10 groups of 100. And uh, since 2014, here's some results. Since 2014, the 100 companies whose officers use the most complex language Averaged a return of 9.45% per year. The companies with the simplest language returned 15.4% per year. And they used the gunning index or the gunner index. It's something like that. Uh, gunning fog index, something like that. But they used a, a website you can go to. You put it in and it tells you like what grade yeah. level. Gunning fog, yeah. Yep. Gunning fog index. And so look, 9.45%, 15.4%, significant difference. And not digging to the details, I think that the, the interesting part of that is just around simplicity. And what I would take away, and the article touched on this a little bit, is if you actually understand something, it's easier to talk simply. Yep. And if you have nothing to hide, it's easier to talk simply. And that, that second part is, is what the article touched on more, is saying if you're, if you're starting to like waffle around and 
answer questions in flowery language, then you probably, you might have something to hide. I, <laughs> this is a non-investing uh, piece of this, but they included an Elizabeth Holmes quote, the founder and CEO yes. of, uh, of Theranos of fame. Who's on trial for thought fraud at the moment <laughs> yeah, exactly this quote again it's not from a ceo and earnings call but this quote just like solidifies exemplifies everything we're saying here it is this is elizabeth holmes a chemistry is performed so that a chemical reaction occurs and generates a signal from the chemical interaction with the sample which is translated into a result which is then reviewed by certified laboratory personnel she added that thanks to miniaturization and automation, we are able to handle these tiny samples. That's how she explained how her product worked. Um, can you tell me anything after that? Well, no, I, I can tell you why she said it that way, because there, her product didn't work and she knew her product didn't work yet. She was still out uh, raising funding and selling the thing. Mm. I'm trying to find the name of the book on her uh, that I Bad read. Blood? Yeah. Real good, um, real good. It's, she it's literally good. had nothing to hide. Like there wasn't even anything that she could hide. It's how literally. <laughs> That's too much. Um, I I'll tell you, I only made it like eighty percent of the way through Bad Blood because I found it so depressing that I I just I, it, it's it's unfortunate. It's I'm so I'm so happy we got to that article, dude. That is truly like awesome. That's definitely That's one good. of the best things I've seen this week. And uh, think of the narrative you're able to tell around that narrative you could start a hedge fund just around being like we're gonna target ceos that use simple language it means they know what they're talking about it means mm. they don't have anything to hide it's, it's the narrative well great. the narrative about the narrative imagine yeah, the valuation on that when you have a narrative about the narrative with a great narrative Ooh. that's a 36 percent premium valuation right there baby so that's like uh the toothpaste of the gas station too soon too soon <laughs> we can't put all our good ideas out here in the pod uh, good point. Good point. Uh, well, this is fun. I hope we didn't uh, cover too much, but we might have. Yeah. It uh, was fun. Rapid fire. Do this more often. Yeah. Well, hopefully I won't take any more limitless pills and uh, we'll only have like, you know, three to five things to cover a week instead of 45. <laughs> there you go. Well, it was good. It was fun. And always, how do you get in touch with us, Skippy? Yeah. Hit us up on Twitter at Skippy Doogles. Skippy Doogles at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast, and follow or subscribe depending on what service you use. Peace.